Well, for 20 years before getting ordained, uh, many of you know I was a theatre director, and um, on one particular occasion, I took a production to the Edinburgh Festival with a company, and we were actually sharing a venue with another company, and they were premiering this musical that was called Too Wonderful for Words. And when the Scotsman newspaper review of that show came out, um, they devoted two entire columns to it, which was unusual. And uh, it went like this. At the top, there was the title, Too Wonderful for Words. And then there were the words of the review, It Isn't. And then there were two blank columns of newsprint. And our world wants to claim many things as being too wonderful for words, many people and places and experiences, but they very rarely are. And Jesus, the life giver, by contrast, is. That's who we're talking about tonight. If you want to learn about Jesus, the giver of life, then for my money, the best biographer to go to is John, the gospel writer John. John had seen Jesus, he'd looked into his eyes, he had lain his head on the breast of Jesus at the Last Supper, he had stood under the cross looking up at Jesus, he had met the risen Jesus, and on the Isle of Patmos, he'd had a vision of the ascended Jesus. And at the end of his gospel, John says that countless books could be written about Jesus. John has seen so many wonderful things done by him. And what kind of life does John show Jesus giving us? Well, firstly, created life. Jesus literally breathes his life into each one of us. In John chapter 1, John shows Jesus uh, as the word present at the creation of the world. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Jesus is the source of all life. The 17th century German philosopher Leibniz asked this of the universe. He said, why is there something rather than nothing? And that's a question that science has been unable to answer. So why does Jesus give us life? Why does he bring creation into being? And it's out of love that love that Haley just spoke of. He creates us out of self-giving love because he wants us to know his love and to come into relationship with him. And to that end, he does what no scientist has ever been able to do and will never be able to do. He brings a living being into life out of nothing. He creates life, and he does it again and again and again and again. Only Jesus can do this. And he makes us in his image. Every one of us he sees as equal. He confers equal dignity on. And that is so important. It's so important in relation to beginning-of-life issues, end-of-life issues, how we think about these things. 
And then he places us, as any loving parent longs to do, in a good home. He makes a creation that he pronounces good. Everything in the fabric of creation is good, abundantly good. And of course, he calls us to steward his creation. And we've got the COP26 conference going on at this moment in Glasgow. And all of us just instinctively recognize the importance of this moment. And this goodness of life that Jesus brings, where has it come from? What has it come from? It's come from nothing. At the beginning of Genesis, Jesus is present before emptiness and chaos and darkness. And it's into these places that he pours his abundant life. It's all by grace from the start. The chaos and the darkness have done nothing to deserve it. So what does this mean for our lives? Well, it meant, for example, that when my wife Jen had two very early miscarriages after our son Finn, it meant that we were able to come to Jesus with our emptiness and in expectancy that he would pour new life into it at some point. We didn't know in what form. And I remember a, a windy, rainy day in Dorset. We climbed up this remote hillside because we'd spotted a ruined chapel at the top. And we went into that chapel and we just gave these two unborn children back to Jesus. And it was such a treasured thing to know that in his eyes, uh, he valued them equally to any able-bodied child that had been born. They were precious in his sight. And we felt peace and release and relief. Maybe you're in a place of emptiness or darkness in your life. And perhaps at the moment, it's very hard to conceive something good coming into being there. Well, that's precisely where Jesus loves to work. And then John reports Jesus' words in John chapter 6, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Because of the fall, we're separated from God. We're caught up in spiritual death. The most successful theater production I ever directed, and they weren't all successful, but the most successful one, which traveled around the country and caught an audience's attention in a way I'd never seen before, was of a very old play called Dr. Faustus. And it's the story of a man who sells his soul to the devil in return for what he believes will be life. It's the story, really, of, of everyone who's outside the kingdom of God. And it's a tragedy, of course. And I just couldn't believe how I saw this play grip and compel a modern audience again and again and again and again. And Jesus wants to save us from spiritual death and to bring us back into relationship with the Father. And to do that, he enters our world 
and he becomes the bread of life. And when we eat of this bread, when we come to know Jesus as Lord, we enter his dynamic new life. We gain a new identity. We gain a new family. We gain a new sense of purpose. But it's not just for this life. We're written into a never-ending story. We find that our names get written into the Lamb's book of life. The artist Van Gogh, he wrote to a friend, Christ alone of all the philosophers affirmed eternal life as the most important certainty. Scorning marble and clay and paint, working in the living flesh, this peerless artist made neither statues nor paintings nor books. He made living men immortals. Jesus gives us eternal life. And he gives us wonderful, glorious, new resurrection bodies. But he also gives himself as the bread of life for our lives now. If you remember John's account of Jesus at the wedding at Cana, when the wine runs out, I, I once got together with a friend who works at the Oxford Wine Company in order to try and work out how much wine Jesus creates out of the six stone jars of water. And we calculated 7,000 glasses of the finest wine. My friend said probably something like Chateau Margaux 1994, if you're a wine buff. In other words, an abundance of wine. And I don't know if you've ever had the experience of, of having something to eat, perhaps, and saying it, it was heaven, or of an experience, it just felt like heaven. I'm ready to go to heaven. Jesus wants us to taste his glory and the goodness of his life. He brings his life into places of lack. And if you tonight feel depleted, if you feel like you've run out of juice, like you're lacking, then that is exactly the situation in which Jesus loves to minister, in which he loves to come with his life and share it with you. And then as we continue to eat this bread of life, we make choices for life. We set our eyes on things above. We store up our treasures in heaven and we choose life, not death. This happened for me at a particular moment in my life when I was considering ordination into the Church of England. And at the time, I was actually working for an outfit in London called the School of Life. It's an organization that had been set up by a popular philosopher who felt that people needed tools for life and that we could find them by looking at the wisdom of past ages. And I was writing courses and delivering teaching, and this outfit was opening up centers in the capital cities across the world. So all of that was going on. And then there was the prospect of going back to school, to theological college, and giving up our house in London, and burying myself in the Church of England. And I remember going to the theological college I ended up studying to have a look around in Bristol and smelling the aroma of boiled cabbage in the corridors and then going outside and actually being heartily sick in the gutter at the prospect 
of having to go there. But Jesus gave me this vision. He gave me this vision of what my life would be like if I stayed working at the school of life. And it was a life of no growth, no change, no growth in me. And it absolutely chilled me to the bone. Because the life that Jesus offers us is not intended to be head knowledge. He wants to change us. Jesus, the life giver, wants to transform us. And I've never regretted that choice. The philosopher Peter Kreeft writes this, Christ changed every human being he ever met. In fact, he changed history, splitting it open like a coconut and inserting eternity into the split between BC and AD. If anyone claims to have met him without being changed, he has not met him at all. When you touch Christ, you touch lightning. And then John records Jesus speaking about his sheep. And he says this, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Jesus wants fullness of life for us to the point where we actually overflow with it, with streams of living water kind of bubbling up from our cores and us giving away our lives. I've recently been reminded of one of the most um, chilling things I ever saw on TV, uh, a TV episode called The Sad Story of Henry from the Thomas the Tank Engine TV series. Perhaps you've been similarly traumatized by it. In it, Henry, the train, wants to stay in his tunnel on a rainy day because he's worried that the rain is going to spoil his green paint and his red stripes. And uh, the fat controller's not happy and tries to get him pulled out the tunnel and then gets people at the other end of the tunnel trying to push him out. But Henry is not playing ball. He doesn't want to play the game of life. And it ends up with him being abandoned. And he actually gets bricked up in the tunnel. And he kind of peers out as the other trains are thundering by in the sunlight. He fails to give his life away to others, even at the expense of a few hard knocks. And actually, the soot and the dirt from the tunnel ruin his paint anyway. Jesus wants us to know his overflowing life. And he wants that life to flow out to others. Now, of course, we'll only know life to the full totally in the new creation when Jesus comes again. But we get foretastes of this abundant life now. And the more we meditate on this astonishing life that Jesus is going to bring us in the new creation, the more it changes our lives now. In Revelation 21, Jesus says, I am making all things new. And John adds about this astonishing place, the new creation, the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. In other words, there's a direct line between our lives now, how we lead them, and the life of the world to come. Because everything that we fashion now that glorifies God and honors God 
is going to be brought into the new creation. In 1962, President John F. Kennedy visited the NASA Space Center. And while he was walking around there, he spotted a caretaker with a broom. And Kennedy broke off his tour, and he went over to the man, and he said, hi, I'm Jack Kennedy. What do you do here? And the caretaker replied, well, Mr. President, I'm helping to put a man on the moon. And the journalists who were watching didn't understand. They just thought this was the man who cleaned the buildings. But in his eyes, he lived a bigger story. He was part of a changing history. And that gave him dignity. And it gave him purpose. And it gave him destiny. You can see what you do in life as a job or a profession. Or you can see it through the filter of life to the full in the new creation. And you can partner now with Jesus in the renewal of all things. How does John describe life in the new creation? He says it will be a place with no more mourning or death or crying or pain. Perhaps like Jesus, you're a, you're a bringer of justice. He says that the one that's seated on the throne there will speak words that are trustworthy and true. Perhaps you're a proclaimer and a teacher of truth. He says the foundations of the city walls will be decorated with jewels. Perhaps like Jesus, you're a creator of beauty. He says that the gates of the city will never be shut to anyone arriving. Perhaps like Jesus, you're a builder of community. And the leaves of the tree of life will bring the healing of the nations. Perhaps like Jesus, you're a bringer of peace and reconciliation. It says Jesus' servants will see him face to face and his name will be on their foreheads. Perhaps like Jesus, you're an enabler of intimacy and connection. And finally, it says his servants will reign forever and ever. That's us. Perhaps like Jesus, you're a royal priest called to reign and rule as you were always meant to. Jesus brings us life. He brings us created life. He brings us eternal life. And he brings the beginnings of life to the full as we partner with him in the renewal of all things. The novelist V.S. Naipaul, he wrote a book called Half a Life, Tragic story about a man who lives a divided life. But with Jesus, there are no half measures. And those 7,000 wine glasses at Cana, they foreshadow his blood poured out for you on the cross. And on the cross, he truly becomes the bread of life as his body is broken and torn and ripped for you. The world we live in offers many false versions of life, of kingdom life, and they're kingdoms without the king. And our king is Jesus, who lays down his life for us so that we might pick up and know life to the full with an overflowing cup. That 
is something too wonderful for words. No half lives, no half measures. Jesus brings life.